0: the bastard
1: Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and Gods Speaker Step Series. And now we're going to have Joey come up and tell our joke. Heyo, it's Joey
2: here, and um, I'm your honorary joke teller um, for the meeting. So here we go. A Frenchman walks into a bar with a cat on his shoulder. The cat is wearing a little baseball cap. Hey, that's neat, says the bartender. Where'd you get that?
1: France, the kitty says. They've got millions of them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank
3: you.
1: Uh, Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation. Uh, So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise or that will distract others. Uh, Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away. And ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Uh, So if everybody's ready, we're going to start the meditation. follow me in the fog light prayer Uh, if you don't know it, it's right up here on the on the banner Uh, god let your love shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost sick and dying can find your love through me amen Uh, from the big book page 17 there is a solution the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution we have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action this is the great news that this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism I've asked Kelly to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. So bring up Kelly.
4: Hi, I'm a recovered alcoholic named Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Spiritual Experience. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety, because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, and that such changes could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God-consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information— which is proof against all arguments and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer.
1: Uh, Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. Uh, This is a tech-free meeting, so uh, set your phones to airplane or meeting mode, or better yet, just turn them off. Um, tonight we have Joe D. Uh, doing a guest uh, speaker uh, session for us tonight. Um, I don't know much about Joe. I do know that you were Mike Chase's first sponsor, so I know I have a lot of questions. Um, and I'm hoping that tonight we're going to get some answers to those. So I'm um, going to bring up Joe. Is
5: this one? Uh, no, no, okay. Okay. that's not, Okay. <clears throat> my name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, <clears throat> I just want to say, you know, I don't like speaking. And normally when you hear somebody say that, they drone on for the longest amount of time. So uh, I'll try not to be that person. Uh, the re- I, I was really excited when Michael Chase called me and asked me if I would speak, because this month is my anniversary month. And, uh, you know, I... I sort of believe in things don't happen by accident. I think there's a reason for things to happen. And, uh, my telling my story is not about me or my ego or even my story. It's about something that one of you out there might be able to say, Oh my God, I can relate to that. I can identify with that. That's what the whole purpose, not to entertain or make you laugh. But I will, I'll make you laugh, but that's not the purpose of it. And, uh, I like, you know, I've never been to this meeting before, and I also like the idea that it's a God related, because the meetings that I go to, I don't often talk about my relationship with God and my higher power. It is unquestionably the most <clears throat> important relationship that I have, but I'm also one that I don't need to express it, I think I have to live it. So uh, this. You know, my honesty isn't all that good because, oh, it's not real. Is that real? <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm working on honesty after all these years. 100 hours. that's very nice. Uh, so, uh, I'm celebrating, and I'm, I'm saying this, bec- and I, I don't say this as a matter of humility, but as a matter of honesty, I'm celebrating 46 years in two weeks. And, yeah, that's a, that's a lot of time. And... The miracle of that is not the, is the 46 years, but when I came into AA, I couldn't go a weekend. I couldn't go a night. I had to go I was never drank at home. I was strictly a bar drinker and I had to drink every single day and I never drank unless I got drunk. I would rather not drink than drink and not get drunk. I, I I used to have a boat and going out in the boat with my straight friends and they would like to go fishing and they would drink four beers. What in the world is the sense of drinking four beers? You know, if I want a beer, I want like 24 beers. I don't want to stop. Uh, I'm from Philadelphia. I'm one of those typical Irish Catholic boys from Southwest Philadelphia. I was raised in a very normal family. Uh, I was not normal. I looked normal. I went to Catholic school. But I was always getting in trouble. I was always felt different. Uh, in second grade, I discovered that I was gay because we, I saw something that Jimmy Maloney had, and I knew I wanted what Jimmy Maloney had. You know, <laughs> so uh, and I never thought that there was anything wrong with that. I, you know, I didn't say I choose this. So when I was told that I'm immoral, I'm going to burn in the fires of hell for eternity, I didn't believe it. I said I didn't choose this. You know, I choose my dessert, I choose my dinner, but I, so I never bought any of that stuff. <clears throat> but I also lived, in my mind, in a world of hypocrisy. And I got in a lot of trouble in grade school. Uh, I was taken home, doing this, doing that. Uh, I I mean, most of it was self-induced. I just couldn't keep still. I was always up and around. I I had this one, I'll tell one quick story on this. There was a nun that she just didn't like me, and I did not like her. And she had an ulcer. And I was the milk boy so I could get out of school, get out of the classes. So I gave her a, uh, oh, what's that called, that horrible tasting milk, uh, huh? I milk. buttermilk. So I, And I knew she wasn't supposed to get buttermilk and I gave it to her and she drank it and she threw up. And I thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And She said, stick your tongue out. And she took my tongue and took me down to the office and called my mother. That's, that's my experiences with grammar school. High school was okay. Uh, Eventually, I got into a little relationship and we feigned that we were kidnapped and beat up and all that stuff when in fact we were just going to Atlantic City and we got drunk. So I was thrown out of West Catholic. The first time I drank, I was at a friend's house. We had graduated, uh, I think our eighth grade if I'm not mistaken, and he had one of those basements with a rolling rock. I think they were an eight ounce rolling rock. And that was like the first time I ever drank beer. And I drank one. And my immediate reaction was to look in the refrigerator and see how many more there were and kind of hide them because, you know, that's when I knew that if one of something is good, more and more and more is better. So I, 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 I lived my life before sobriety with anything that is good, more is better. I, uh, I never believed that much in honesty. Honesty. I thought everybody was basically a crook, so I might as well be one, too. They're just, they just don't admit it. They cheat on their taxes. They cheat on their wife. They, they, if they find a $100 bill, they'll put it in their purse. So I'll just be open about it. I'm just going to be a good thief. And, and I did that pretty much the whole time up until sobriety. Uh, when I graduated eventually from high school, I was, I was asked to leave my house, and I moved to downtown Philly, And uh, that was really a bad experience at the time. I was very young. I was 17 years old. And I drank every night. I got drunk every night. But I didn't get in a lot of trouble because I wasn't driving. And in those days, you know, when you got drunk, you just found a corner somewhere and took a nap. And that's what I did. Uh, But then every now and then when I would drive, I always got caught. I always got arrested. And this was long before DUIs. They had what you call DWI. So they just mark it down somewhere. They take you to jail and you get out so I knew I knew absolutely that I was powerless after the first drink. I knew that. I didn't know that's what an alcoholic is. I just thought that I lacked willpower or control or whatever. So I try I, I got a, I after I was thrown out of high school, I got my GED, I got a decent job, I went to LaSalle University in Philadelphia at night school, I worked during the daytime, and I knew enough that I knew I couldn't drink during the week and I would just drink on the weekends. On the weekends, I got drunk and in trouble, but then Monday started over if I made Monday into work. some Half the time I did, half the time I didn't. And uh, eventually, it got to the point where Wednesdays and then Thursdays, and then I just started pretty much drinking all the time. So I graduated from LaSalle and I decided when I was 27 years old I was gonna move to Miami. Uh, it was going to be different down here. I had already lost my license in Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey. So I decided, you know, I wanted to get to Florida and everything would be fine. Well, I got to Florida in 1972. Most of you were too young. You weren't even born then, uh, except for David. He was born in 40. Uh, but the uh, Miami at that time was this mecca of giant discos that are open till 7 and 8 every morning. With drink, this was in the heyday of drugs and drinking and wild sex, wild, wild everything. So you put a brand new alcoholic in that environment and you go downhill very quickly. So over the, it was only like I moved here in 72 and I got sober in 75. But I had three horrendous years of drinking, getting in trouble, not showing up at work, just everything. Uh, I got, I lost my license so many times. In fact, I lost my license for the seventh time, in, seventh time in Florida and my boyfriend worked for a cruise company so I got him to get me a Bahamian license. So I had a Bahamian license and I was stopped at 79th and Biscayne. And the officer said, sir, would you get out of the car? And I said, yeah, I'm the ambassador from Nassau. You can't tell me what to do. So he said, "Well, Mr. Ambassador, we don't have ambassadors in Nassau. Get out of the car." And he opened the door, and I fell flat on my face. And uh, that's one of you know that's not even that unusual. I mean, they t- what do they do today? In today, you'd be screwed for the next ten years. In those days, they, they laugh about it. They took you in jail. I spent the night in jail. Got up the next day, and that was it. So this went on and on and on. Uh, I'm going to sk- skip I, all the instances, all the stuff that happened. Is is what happened to everybody. Uh, when I started drinking, I just could not stop. And then I started taking uh, pills. I was on Escatrol because I needed to control my weight. I was 130 pounds, and I wanted to stay 130 pounds. And uh, when that didn't happen, I switched over to, again, most of you are too young to remember the fabulous Black Beauties. But Black Beauties is what I graduated to on the uh, weekends. Escatrol during the week and Black Beauties on the weekend. And I only drank beer. I didn't drink liquor, I didn't like liquor, but you know, when you drink a case and a half of beer, it doesn't matter whether it's liquor or beer, especially when you mix it with Black Beauties. And uh, I seem to remember having a lot of good times in the first half of the evening, and then all my friends who were drunk was like, ah, let's go home, it's two o'clock, Well, I get lost? The idea of going home never appealed to me, and I knew what would happen, and it always did, and I still didn't care. This one particular... Uh, Towards the end of my drinking, I was at a bar in Miami called The Warehouse, which was this huge disco, a lot of fun, You know, eight different bars, etc., etc. I was drunk. I had been there for afternoon cocktails, and it was 2 in the morning, so you can imagine the shape I was in. And I was leaving, and I couldn't even stand up, and uh, a car outside said, hey, do you have a light? I went up to light his cigarette. And the guy driving shotgun grabbed one arm and the guy in the back seat grabbed my other arm and the guy driving took off. And they dragged me for about two blocks. And I was so drunk, you know, I I didn't even feel it. But I knew I was going to die. I knew that, you know, that if I didn't break loose from this and I summoned this power or whatever you want to call it, that this would be my last shot. They were trying to kill me. And I broke loose, and I was on the side of the road, and my friends caught up, they called an ambulance, I was taken to Jackson Memorial Hospital, and this is a little sketchy to talk about, but it is my story. I had lost all the skin off my feet, off the left side of my arm and my shoulder. And the doctor, and I was in, on the gurney, in the, in the, not in the room, but in the hallway, because of, that was Miami in the 70s, the drug wars, everybody, Saturday night, it was a nightmare. And the doctor looked at me, and he looked down to the nurse. He thought I was unconscious and said, "He's not going to make it through the night. Give me the next one." And I remember hearing that. I remember thinking to myself, "What had I done? Where had I gone? What happened to this little Irish boy who was going to go to school and have a life that I wound up here?" It never occurred to me that it was alcohol and drugs. It always occurred to me that it was everything else. I was a victim. You know, everybody, everybody, and everything else caused this. It wasn't me. And uh, I, I recovered quickly, within a week or so, and I stayed at my friend's house recovering for the next few weeks. But it wasn't the end of my drinking. Uh, about a month after that, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, I had a problem with honesty. I liked embezzling money, not big money, 5,000, 10,000, maybe 20 if I was going on a trip or something, but I didn't go for the big bucks. So. Uh, when I was at, and I was the CFO of a construction company in Miami, and this Friday afternoon, it was on September 24th, 1975, my boss called me in the office. And he said, Joe, I need to talk to you about something. I have found some irregularities in, in our books. You know, and he pulled out a check for 10,000, and another check for 2,000, and another check. I said, and I'm thinking about some. Honey, you got the whole thing right there. And, uh, and I knew I was caught. And uh, he looked at me and I said, excuse me, Les, I have to go to the men's room and I'll come right back. And I did. I went into the men's room and for the first time in my life, I said, God, if you exist, because I wasn't sure who you do, you know, I need help. I surrender. I give up. I, I don't know what to do. I'm probably going to go to prison. I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to lose my job. I'll lose my home. I don't care. You know what? My way sucks. I don't know. I completely give up and I surrender. Uh, And it it was the most, it was the purest surrender I have ever had in my life. I walked back into the office, and Les said to me, You know, here's what I really think. Since you've worked here for the last four years, your behavior has gone downhill. You come in late if you come in at all. And this was the worst thing in the world. And he said, and you stink of alcohol. The girls stay away from you for the first half of the day. I was appalled. I had this nice coat and tie. I stunk of alcohol coming out my pores. He said, I think you have a problem with drinking and alcohol. I think you might be. Might he didn't say, I think you're an alcoholic. He said, I think you have a problem. And I said, well, prison problem. Praise God! I have a problem with alcohol. I'll take that over prison any day. So I did, and uh, you know. And he said, "I want you to go to a meeting tomorrow night." And that was Friday night, September 25th, 1975. I went to the Serenity Group on Miami Beach, and this big queen with the seven—I don't know if you remember the 70s, but they wore these—I don't know—caftans and bags on their shoulders and all that. It was horrifying, and I—I uh, I, I mean, it really was. And I walked into, you know, drove into the parking lot, and I looked at him, and I said, "Oh, no way!" And I went to turn around, and he said, "Joe, Joe, Joe, over here!" And I said, oh, "Shit!" So, so I went to the meeting, and uh, it was a caftan. I don't know if back in the mid '70s, remember those horrible rugs? So, I sat there in a group of people uh, that I had nothing in common with. I just. You looked at them. They, they even had coat and ties on in those days when they went to AA meetings. And and yet, for the first time in my life, I heard things that I had never heard before. I heard people that I had nothing in common with, two speakers, share their story. One was a retired prostitute, and the other was a retired cop from New York. And I don't know what a prostitute retires, but they did. She was and, uh, and she became a good friend of mine. And... Uh, you know, I heard things that had nothing to do with being gay, it had nothing to do with anything other than I am an alcoholic personality. And I just completely identified. I was shocked. And he said, my sponsor to me, which was Louis, said, you know, what do you think? And I said, I, I, I'm I'm really shocked at how much I identify. I really like this. And I, he said, what are you doing tonight? And I said, well, I'm going to meet all my friends at the, uh, down in Coconut Grove. We're, we, on Saturday nights, we have dinner. We go there for drinks. But I'll just have a Diet Coke. He said, well, why don't you skip that? Skip it on a Saturday night and do what? And But I did it. I skipped it. He said that. I did it. I went back Monday, and I was really proud of myself. He said, did you drink? I said, no. No, I made it. I, uh, two days for me was an eternity. I went Saturday night and Sunday. Sunday is this tea dance up at the Marlin beach. I missed that. I missed all this other stuff. And he said, was it difficult? I said, no, it wasn't so bad. And if I felt edgy, I just took a hit of speed. I took a little escatrol or a black beauty. And then he said, well, we don't do that. I said, what do you mean? It's not alcohol. And he said, and then, you know, that old, we don't snort it, sneed it, you know, shoot it, whatever, whatever that thing is. I said, well, wait a minute. Is there anything else? Let's get the whole thing out on the table. What exactly is it that we're not doing now? And he said, alcohol and all other mind-ordering drugs. So not cigarettes. Oh, no. No, everybody smoked back then. Uh, every single person. So as long as I had my soda and my, my uh, cigarettes, I was okay. So that was, uh, that Friday, that Saturday night, I did not pick up a white chip. I said, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. I think I have a problem with alcohol. And he said, well, we have a 30-day program for you. Just stay here for 30 days, and then we'll review you. I don't know where that came from, but I believed him. I thought he was the uh, vice president or something. So, and so did he. Uh, So I, you know... Every day I went back, every day it happened, I, I, every time I, when I, i was one of those people that I like reading, and I read the big book, I read it cover to cover, because it fascinated me when it talked about things that I had, that I knew, but I didn't know anyone else thought, and I, the things that are, you know, when we talk about, it's simple things that we all take for granted, it's the first drink. Nobody, to me, it was always the ninth drink. It was never the first drink. And of course it was the first drink because once I had that, I lost the ability to make a choice. And the other thing is right early on in our literature, it talks about the core of our disease. And the one thing that I didn't think that I was was self-centered. The truth is I was so self-centered, I didn't recognize being self-centered. Everything revolved around me. And I didn't really see a problem with that. Isn't everyone like that? No, everyone is not like that. People do care about other people. People, you know, react to other and I was not. The good news is I was with a group of people like you that are very, very self-centered. So, and I, you know, that is the core of our disease. And when that self-centeredness activates itself, we then activate our character defects because we get our instincts are out of control. And when our instincts are out of control, we move over here. So it's not that our instincts are bad. It's just that our instincts are uh, controlling us instead of us controlling them. My whole philosophy on life was if something is good, more is always better. And I don't believe that today. So I began the journey of sobriety. And after 30 days, I picked up a white chip. It was the most, thank God it's not recorded. I'll never forget. It's the most horrifying. I went to the front of the room and I said, Ugh, "I know you've all been waiting for this, and I'm ready to pick up my white chip." Nobody was waiting. Nobody <laughs> gave a shit. And I saw my sponsor sitting down there going, "Oh no!" So I. Uh, but it was it was monumental for me because it was. I made a decision when I decided not to go to that bar and that club on that first Saturday night that for the first time in my life I was going to follow instruction. I was going to do what AA told me to do, not dependent upon whether I agreed. Nobody asked me, do you agree with this? I mean, the things I agreed with got me where I was. So I wanted to learn this way and a lot of it didn't make a lot of sense. And uh, I did it anyway. I went to a meeting every day. And in those days, we didn't, they didn't emphasize uh, 30 and 30 and 90 and 90 like we do now. But I loved it because I went to Miami. I met some friends. We went to Carl Gables. We went to South Miami. We went to Fort Lauderdale. We traveled all over in a little cadre. And it was, it was just a wonderful time in sobriety. And then my sponsor and his sponsor said, we want you to speak. And uh, I didn't want to do it. I said, and you know, if we had this little, well, you said you're willing to do whatever I suggest. And I said, "Well, it's a suggestion, and I'm not taking it." And he said, "Well, no, that's so." We had so I did it, and just before I spoke, he said to me, "You'll be accepted in your story. Just make sure you change the pronouns." Well, talk about terrifying someone before they're ready to speak who doesn't want to speak, and then to me lying about who I am. Didn't make sense, but I did it because that's what he said. And that was the life they lived in 1975, and that worked for them. It does not, it did not and does not work for me. If I'm going to be honest, I need to be honest in all the affairs of my life. And uh, we started a uh, gay group in Miami, the first one called the All Together Group in 1977, and it's still going on. It's not really gay, it's, it's, there's no such thing as a gay group. It's a group of AA where people who are gay are friends. But anyone's friend, anyone is welcome. But it was absolutely wonderful. And uh, we got about 30 people. And we, we uh, made arrangements to meet at the Episcopal Church in downtown Miami. And they found out we were gay. And they found that out from my sponsor, who is gay, who said, You don't want those kind of people you know, in your church. So that was devastating. But we found another place we met. And it was just another outlet to be who we are and what we are, and, and it, was, it was an incredible time in my life. Uh, later on, and you know, during this period of time, I, I, I remember I read the big book, and then I started reading, because I, I knew what the steps were, and I knew what the principles were, and I had this idea that when you read, you're working the program. Reading the program is not working the program. What that means is the principle behind step one is honesty. So you can read that all you want, but if you're still stealing money from petty cash, you're not practicing it. So I had to learn, how do you practice honesty? You have to be willing to be honest in everything. Doesn't mean you have to be honest, but you have to be willing to be honest. And that's a pretty tall order. I found it to be a very tall order. But again, I made a decision early on to follow the instructions of what they said, and I did that. So I had it, you know, the first five years were like uh, this incredible pink rainbow. Everything was wonderful. But then reality set in. And the reality was I I was getting tired of AA. I got in a relationship. I bought a house. I got a car. And, you know, instead of four or five meetings, I was going to one or two. And then that old thinking crept back in. You know, you're going to hear the same old shit you hear all the time anyway, so you don't need to go there. Let's stay home and have your honey cook a dinner and go watch a movie or whatever. And I found myself right back where I was in my behaviors and my thinking, and I knew how dangerous that was. So I recommitted to me and my program and the steps, and that's when I, that's when I realized I had to employ what I know into my real life. I had to give it away. I had to have hope. I had to have faith. I had to have integrity. I, these aren't just pretty words. They are the way that you live your life. They are the, they, It is what you do. None of us are very perfect at it. But the longer you're around, you get better at it. I mean, today I do the right thing because it's the right thing. That's not the way I was when I got here. Today I am trying to be honest in everything. Even at publics. you know, uh, I won't put something in my cart underneath so they don't notice it, I'll say, excuse me, you forgot the water. You know, still hurts to do it, but I do it. Uh, So, I mean, uh, that's what I have to do. I have to learn how to practice these things. And when I I then moved up to Fort Lauderdale and uh, Fort Lauderdale was incredible at that point too. And uh, I bought a house in Coral Ridge and it was around that period of time, a few years later that I met Michael Chase uh, along with a whole group of people around his age. And uh, again, we, had, we used to go dancing, we used to do this, we used to do that. We, we had such a... It was a wonderful time. Chase was just saying before the meeting that they were some of his best years. Uh, he didn't do too much in the program, but he had a very active social life. Uh, and, you know, he was so much fun. Chase was one of the funniest persons I've ever met, besides me. And... Uh, <laughs> So it was, it was fun. And then we started the clubhouse. Uh, we had about four or five special interest meetings, and we decided to open up Lambda South, which is right across the street, and we've been open since 1983. So we've been around a long time. We own the clubhouse. Uh, we have like 60 meetings a week there. And I'm happy to say it is not, you know, it is not a gay clubhouse. It is a clubhouse where people, all people go, half the beginner's meeting or straight or half, it doesn't matter. In today's world and in AA, it just doesn't matter. So I'm, I'm happy about that. The, the whole idea that you need a separate, you know, equal but separate doesn't, does not appeal to me. Uh, I have been so blessed. I am pro, I'm 47 years old and I have 46 years of sobriety. So... Uh, God has been very good to me. I, uh, I just like sobriety. I like the life I've had. The most difficult thing by far was when my mother died. Uh, I, 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 I now know that, you know, you, never try, you don't get over that. You just learn to live with it. I had the great, great pleasure when I was two years sober of my mother moving down. I owned a condo, and she, she bought one right on top of me. And in addition to being my mother, we just became good friends, and I got to see this incredible woman in the charity and the love and example that I never got to experience because I was, I, you know, when I lived in Philly, it was, never, it was about staying away from my family, you know, because of my drinking and drugging and all that stuff. So that is one of the greatest gifts. And, you know, one of the hardest things was when she passed. But for the time she was here and the, and the son that I have been, I was a good son. I was a son that I can say I'm proud of. And, you know, she did say one time to me, when I go, I don't want you ever to be sorry. You've done everything I could ever have had and hoped for. And she said, and I know you're a member of AAA. I said, no, mom, AA. Uh, <laughs> AAA Cars, AA Life. She, she never got it. but she, uh, So... I, you know, the, the experience of living a sober life doesn't mean that we're not dealt difficulties, we're not dealt sadness, we're not, we're, we're, we live the same, I think, we live the same life as everyone else. We have sickness, we have death, we have joy, we have happiness, we have family. The difference is, I've been given a set of tools, and they're spiritual tools. And those tools are, I cannot imagine living my life. I'm happy today. You know, and for a gay man in his 70s, who's only 5'5". Five, five. Oh, by the way, I was very victimized. I, I didn't like being gay. I didn't, you know, I wanted to be straight. I don't like fashion. I don't like colors. I don't like design. I like football. I like, I always thought, why am I, that doesn't make any sense. I much prefer my straight friends who, who watch football games and talking about what color things are. I don't care what color anything is. But that's, that was not true. They're not all gay people are like that. Uh, <laughs> so I was very kind of unhappy with that. Uh, but I was unhappy with everything. I just wasn't happy with who I am. Today, I don't want to be anyone other than who I am. Uh, and like I said, I'm in my mid-70s. Uh, God has blessed me in a way that I could not have imagined, and uh, I think I, I think that we're all that way. We all, you know, our our message and our purpose is to help other people. You cannot get the gifts of sobriety and keep it; it will decay, and you will decay, and it, it, it won't happen. And that's the biggest thing I find with newcomers: is you know, they get their life, they get their life in order. You know, they get their car and they get their boyfriend or girlfriend and they get this and they get that. And they do what I did when I was like five years. You know, do I really want to go to... And it, it's so easy. But the gift of sobriety is contingent upon our spiritual condition. And the purpose, it tells us it right early on in the big book, is our purpose is to pass the message on to the still-suffering alcoholic. And sometimes that's inconvenient. Sometimes that interferes with what we want to do. I have a few people in here that I sponsor, and I've never had a period in my entire sobriety that I have not sponsored people. I've always sponsored people, and you know, and it certainly is a cliche, but it 's so true I, I get as much or more from them than they do from me. And uh, you know, when I hear myself saying things like, "Where the hell did that come from?" or "I didn't know I knew that, or better yet, maybe I should try that. that's the best one. <laughs> And I, that happens, and I'm sure it happens to all of you. It's like, you know, we're really good at thinking about, what, you know, uh, ways people can improve their lives as long as it doesn't mean me. So, uh, so I've done that, and I'm aware of it. The most important thing now in my life is my awareness. And by awareness, I mean uh, what's really going on? Who am I? What am I doing? You know, uh, how is my life? Am I being kind? Am I being caring to other people? Uh, Am I consumed with money? Am I consumed with something, you know, do I want more of something than I really need? Yeah, sometimes. And, you know, it's like there's, I don't think you ever reach a point in sobriety where you have it. You reach a point where you're really, really, really getting it, but you don't really have it. Uh, I live today one day at a time. And I, uh, my life is about the same I ask God for help in the morning I try to live the best day during the day doing at this point doing as little as possible and then uh, going to a meeting I love my day I get up I go to the beach walk on the beach I go to the gym I eat lunch I take a nap I get up I go to a meeting I talk about how wonderful God and you are and I take a nap and go back to bed so <laughs> you may not find that exciting but I'm okay with that life uh and I'm at a point, I, I can pretty much do whatever I want to do. Well, you know what? That's what I want to do. I'm okay. Uh, so the awareness is, is the key to keep, uh, uh, be aware of what's, I don't want to become one of these old timers who is, becomes rigid in their thinking or rigid in what they do, because then I'm of no value to them and I become of lessening value to myself. My most important relationship, and I never talk about this, but it is with God. I had a spiritual awakening September 24th, 1975. I surrendered 100% to God and said, I surrender, I will do whatever happens. And for the last 46 years, I have been the recipient of that grace. And when I say grace, to me, grace is power. It is the power to do the things that I could not do before I got here. Now I can do it. Uh, I don't like doing the things that I used to do I certainly don't like stealing I certainly don't like lying I don't like gossiping most of the time uh, I don't you know I, I try to uh, live the life that that I want to live to be of service to other people you know what and now I hear myself repeating myself that's a good indication let's see oh good it's 8 o'clock so I'll, I'll wrap it up with saying uh I don't know why, you know, in the end of the 12 and 12 and the 12 step, it talks about the satisfactions of right living. I suggest you read that. And it explains that real happiness doesn't come from the things that we accomplish. It comes from being satisfied with who you are and what you are and the life you live. You're not in a race with somebody else. Be grateful for the life that you have And you will be amazed beyond your wildest beliefs at your happiness and your fulfillment. And you may not have the things that other people have, or you may have it. It's almost irrelevant. But uh, it's my favorite passage in all of the literature because it speaks to me about me. So uh, I am a satisfied customer from that day when I surrendered and received the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you. (laughs)
1: Let's thank Joe again. Um, And hold on. Uh, Before you go tonight, we just want to give you a complimentary, special, limited edition Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) I've never even seen one of those before. It's first of its kind. Um, all right, so let's bring up James for the secretary's report.
2: Hello, my name is James, and I am your recovered alcoholic secretary. In keeping with the Seven tradition, which states every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. Can I put this 100 in there? Uh, I've asked um, Amy to come up and read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering, and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. So Amy, come on up.
6: Hello, I'm Amy, alcoholic. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for a lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of, uh, of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in the body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered.
2: Thank you, Amy. 1940s-style big book sponsorship from forward to the second edition, Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe and experience is that God has not changed over time and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistic above sh- suggests a 75% success rate. I'm going to ask for a show of hands of recovered alcoholics. Oh wow, there's a lot tonight. Um, does anyone need a sponsor? Oh, in the back. Perfect. All you recovered alcoholics go help this guy in the back and hang out in the end of the meeting if you'd like to. Uh, Let me see. We have some announcements. The BCIC, the Broward County Intergroup, nope, wrong one. Broward County Intergroup, uh, they sell alcohols, anonymous products. The helpline's listed there as well. Um, And then we have the BCIC... It's the, where they go into jails and institutions. They have the, sec, the meeting on the second Saturday of the month at 10 a.m. at the 12-step house. Uh, please join us Monday night's Big Book Study meeting where the Book Book comes alive. Fellowship's at 6.30. Big Book Study starts at 7.15. We have CDs, mugs, large print big books, the Little Red Book, and Big Book dictionaries for sale. We meet every Thursday here starting promptly at 7.15, and we ask you to be courteous at the sound of the bells. We will see you next week.
1: Great. Uh, we have tonight's session and all at, all past speaker podcasts online for free at alcoholicsandgod.org. Um, I'd like to invite everyone to our Monday night big book study again. Uh, those who wish to thank tonight's speaker, you can just line up down the center aisle. Um, and then also uh, next Thursday, um, we have uh, Pat R. starting a 12-step series for us, so definitely come check that out. Um, And then also, if you could just wait to uh, vape or smoke, there's a bucket down at the end here, the Boy Scouts from the church tonight. um, They'll try and get your cigarettes off of you, so just hold them down there. Um, And let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, Father. who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Come. thy Thy will be be done, done. on On earth earth as as it is is in heaven. heaven.
3: Bodies aching. I am desperately in need of restoration.
7: Together. Yes, when you're laughing, ba 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 When you're laughing, yes, the sun Come shining. Rain. so stop your sign
6: See the light, count my blessings when I go to sleep at night, and I dream now. Uh-huh. Fear has left me and I'm standing tall. A pile of bricks now lies where once there stood a wall that I hid behind. And people sing along and stomp their feet and raise their arms. Chase
8: RAP